Welcome back to Yes, X or No Audio. Welcome to another episode of Week in Review. For week 42 of the year 2023, it is 7am in the morning on Sunday, October the 22nd, here on the eastern side of the Great Dividing Range in Australia, the smallest and driest of our continents. The week has, of course, been dominated by news coming from the conflict between the State of Israel and the refugee camp of Gaza. That has been covered in five Day in Review episodes, which will be concatenated and included at the end of this episode. And I shall remind you of that coming when it approaches so that you can turn the damn thing off. Here we're going to focus on what else has been going on. Usual structure. Start with any war headlines, then what other people have been saying, and then a little uh, note or two before the five episodes of Day in Review. In the anti-war headlines, we have US won't draw red lines on Israel's use of white phosphorus munitions. And the reason I haven't categorised that as Israeli slash Gaza news is because it's to do with white phosphorus munitions. And I suggest to people that when the US won't draw red lines on munitions, uh, expect that that's because they're being sold by the US military industrial complex. I just thought I'd throw that in as a little way of thinking about when there are no red lines, it's because we're selling the weaponry. And we have, from the Middle East, we have Israel bombs Syria's Aleppo airport for the second time within three days. Uh, And, well, this is Syria, uh, not uh, Israel, Gaza, and it's just a continuation every single week. I think, what was it last week? We, we, We counted them up. That was 26 times in 41 weeks that Israel has been bombing shit in Syria. That ain't stopped. And here we have one that's far more interesting. US and Qatar agree to deny Iran access to $6 billion of its funds. I believe I commented upon this previously. It's an echo of the same stuff we've seen against Venezuela and Afghanistan and Russia, you know, the claiming of of national assets by the US. Theft. Uh, And that's it for anti-war. There you go. In the Other Voices section, we have three themes. The first is media, and it does actually relate to Israel, but I think it's significant. And it was Caitlin Gonstone's article, The Mainstream Press Keep Slamming, Israel's hospital bombing story. In this article, she draws on reports by uh, British Channel 4, and they examine the audio which Israel releases, which is purportedly claimed by them to be between two terrorist Hamas blah, 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 operatives or whatever about the bombing of the hospital. So Channel 4 grabbed this audio, and they pull together, you know, a few language specialists and they go, oi, what do you reckon? And the language specialists go, well, yes, okay, Arabic, not bad, uh, but uh, absolutely wrong tone, wrong style of language, wrong, 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 obviously not who they're claiming it to be. So the point there is not so much that Israel put out a piece of uh, misleading data to divert attention from the fact that, my God, it was them, and we all bloody well know this. It's the fact that it the analysis was published on the UK's Channel 4 News, which is a mainstream media channel. So that indicates the level of trouble which the US and Israel are having. They can't corral the media anymore, which is quite interesting in itself. And, of course, stuff has still been happening in Ukraine. And so I include for you below uh, the most recent episode from Dima of Military Summary Channel of what the hell is going on in Ukraine because he's been doing yeoman work in keeping us all up to date on what's been happening there. And the summary of it, I believe, could be best summarised as active defence. So this was a term that Russia rolled out. And what they've been doing, essentially, is seeing the fact that Ukraine is completely pucked. uh, And so they're holding their positions. And then where there are strategic areas for them to increase their positions, they're doing that. And this goes back to the analysis which Colonel McGregor put out well over a year ago. If you go back to the withdrawals, the first in the north in Kharkiv and then in the south in Kherson, where Russia withdrew 
And the first was due to a very good attack by Ukrainian forces with the intelligence data from the west in uh, Kharkiv. The, the lines were not strong enough to hold uh, the defence, and they just ran away, which was good. Preserved their troops, destroyed a bit of stuff, you know, rather than let it fall into the enemy's hands. Did the sort of stuff you do in war. Uh, and then in Kherson, it was the other way around. They sat there and, and let the Ukrainians approach and cause all mighty amount of damage. Um, and then uh, I think one of the general, sort of, he can, can't remember, went, no, nah, this is a bastard ass. If we try and hold this, we'll just get hammered and then we'll have a big problem trying to withdraw later on uh, as they advance. So, nope, we're going to pull the plug now. And so they did. Um, and this was after there'd been numerous attacks using high Mars rockets on the big bridge that goes over the uh, Dnieper to Heson City. So they just went, nah, this is busted ass, and they pulled back. So that was, you know, that was that position. And it was around this time that um, McGregor was coming out and saying, you have to watch what the Russians are doing. They're treating this very seriously. And they're not treating land as of strategic importance. No, it is their useful military assets, i.e. the troops and the logistics supplies, you know, the tanks, the, the planes, whatever. They're preserving their dynamic assets and they don't give a shit about the static assets, those being land, unless they are of strategic importance. And we're seeing the same strategy being rolled out now. They are going for the bits of territory that are of strategic importance. So, same thing continues. Uh, on geopolitics, the big news of the week was the third meeting for the BRI project, which was held in Beijing. Uh, and we have a report on that from various people, um, most notably uh, Pepe Escobar. Uh, but below I include four pieces for you. The first is a discussion between Pepe Escobar and Michael, professors Michael Hudson and uh, Radakai Desai about multipolarity, the new world order that's being formed with Russia, China and BRICS Plus and the SEO and so forth. And I highly advise that you watch and listen to this if you have the time. It's about an hour long. And they, um, Desai and Hudson do one of these every week or two. Uh, and they're quite good, bringing people up to date. And it's lovely to hear uh, Escobar uh, in terms of what he knows because he's been doing all the roving reporting. Uh, and then we move to a really excellent article by Alfred McCoy, who's a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and his PhD theory was on basically the, the CIA's drug trade during the uh, Vietnam War period in Southeast Asia. Interesting guy. And what he does is he provides a description of the construction and now collapse of Franck Afrique, the, the neo-colonial French imperium in Africa, after the uh, Second World War. And he looks at the services that um, Evgeny Prigozhin provided to Russia in extending their influence into Africa. And one of the things he does is omits uh, the US role in a number of these things. So he, for example, he just notes the fact that Russia achieves this man magnificent uh, airfield in northern Syria at Komnim, and he doesn't mention the Syrian war, which is going on, which is where how that comes about. So he's... I don't believe that he's blind to the US's role in these things. I think he's deliberately omitting them because he doesn't want to get himself into any bother. He's sort of retired and doesn't want to be bothered by all this stuff. But it's a brilliant piece of analysis, so have a look at that. Just be aware that he's deliberately omitting the US's role in various things. So the US was heavily involved in Africa too. They set up AFRICOM, blah, blah, blah. He mentions Nick Terse, who's the best US reporter on this. Uh, so he knows exactly what's going on. He just chooses not to mention too much of the US's role. But it's a brilliant article, so please check that out. And then we have uh, a, counter, a piece of counter-analysis on the multipolarity front, and this is from uh, Natalia's Place, Understanding Russia, by a guy called Tarek Cyril Amar, who I haven't read before, but it's called Multipolarity is Not Enough. And I think that's an interesting uh, piece of sort of counter-analysis on the new structure, global structure of geopolitics that's being set up. So check that out. And there is also a really good piece of geoeconomic analysis, which is a, an interview that Danny Haifong holds with Ben Norton. And what, I like this for two reasons. First of all, these are both, um, there are a couple of young uh, journalists who I like very much, uh, and the two of them get together and have a chat about the economic structures that the US used to maintain its uh, imperium. And so it provides a really nice background to 
what's happening behind bricks, essentially, and the financial structures. So this is to do with the parallels that China and uh, Russia and their partners are setting up to the institutions which the US set up. So that would be the World Bank and the IMF, uh, and the new structures are the New Development Bank, uh, which is sort of the BRICS bank, and also the Asia Infrastructure Development Bank, which is China's funding vehicle for the BRI project. So a bunch of interesting things for you to look at there. In terms of interesting articles published uh, this week, well, there was only really one, which was my take on the, the hospital bombing. As far as I'm concerned, it's absolutely clear who did this. And I think that's best summarised in, I think it was episode five of Day in Review. So that'll come at you in a minute, because I'm just going to merge them all together and play them at you. Ha! Uh, so it's been a lot of fun producing the Day in Review daily episodes on this. And I've used the current conflict as a way of visiting themes that I find of uh, more interest than talking about death and destruction. So I hope you enjoy that. And with that, I say, see you next week. And here comes all five episodes of Day in Review. This little series uses the concept of Week in Review on a much higher frequency, sort of Day in Review, to examine the current conflict between the Palestinian people and the State of Israel. I'll collect the anti-war headlines, and some other commentary from the wider community. What I'll attempt to do is take some of the key ideas that I see being expressed and synthesize them into some extended thinking. The first of the three that I wish to bring forth was put forward by Caitlin Johnston, and I considered it significantly insightful that I stuck it in a subheading in the last week in review for week 41 and gave it the, the headline, Inside. And there's no better way to summarise it than uh, her final two paragraphs because she's a good writer, she puts the point <laughs> succinctly at the end and it goes like this. To be a hypocrite is no great evil in and of itself. We're all a bit hypocritical in some ways. What absolutely is a great evil is inflicting violence and destruction throughout the world in order to pursue planetary hegemony while lying about your reasons for doing so. That's why we highlight the contradictions, not to show that the Empire and its supporters are hypocrites, but to show the far greater evils hidden behind those contradictions. The next idea that's rolled out is by Alex Christoforo, and he asks the question, well... If the IDF is all ready, why aren't they going in and launching their attack into Gaza? And the reason that's being rolled out is the weather. And that's obviously rubbish. And so the question becomes, what is it? And the first possibility is that the pressure from Russia and China, their diplomatic efforts are causing some trouble. There's also the not-so-veiled threat by Iran, i.e. to unleash Hezbollah to Israel's north. There is one more, which I think is far more to the point, and that's revealed by the change in rhetoric. So early on, the US is calling for calm, and there are media reports that they are trying to prevent this current conflict from spreading more widely in the Middle East. This then is changed, we learn about this, that Essentially, the uh, State Department is instructing its staff, diplomats, to not use the terms like, you know, um, uh, prevent, you know, no escalation and, and so forth. They're quite happy to escalate, is what's happening. And this goes in line with the fact that they've now, uh, they being the US executive, have instructed a second <laughs> aircraft carrier strike group or whatever the hell they call, you know, their shining cities on the hill. Assembling in the Eastern Mediterranean. So what's actually happening is a concentration of military force, and that is a potential trigger. Not because it's a threat, but because it may be attacked, and then it becomes a threat. This is the thing. So this combines with the third idea, which comes from the discussion between Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté from the Grey Zone. They revisit the emotional manipulation that was 
delivered to the US population by the daughter of the then Kuwaiti ambassador to the US back in 1990 or 1991. And that classic line of, you know, the uh, the Iraqis were throwing the babies out of the incubators onto the cold, hard floor, which we now know to have been written by a US PR firm. What was it? Norton and Hill or something? I can't remember. Anyway, listen, if you listen to them, they, they know. Uh, so that's a, a piece of emotional manipulation uh, to to goad the US population into supporting a war. And there are, of course, the other way to do this is with false flag attacks. So essentially the emotional manipulation is a form of false flag attack on the emotions. And physical ones, look, it's an important part of historical learning is to go back and look at how many of these false flags there are in history from, you know, the sinking of the Lusitania for World War One, and the, um, you know, remember the main, the sinking of the main in, of Cuba and and the Gulf of Tonkin event and the Nazis, you know, staging the thing in the Polish radio state. It's just on and on and on. Look through history, learn about these things. So what happens when you put two Air Force carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean, which is not that big a space for Air Force aircraft carrier task groups, right? It's quite easy for mistakes to happen. And, of course, if damage is done to these, you know, shining cities on the hill, then that will go the U.S. population into into a war. So this is it's it's a setup to run a false flag. That's the danger that that I see, and I think that is being hinted at by both um, uh, Marte Blumenthal and, to a degree, by Christophe So th- these are the sorts of areas, like taking the ideas that being that are being put forward. I'm going to try and synthesize them into some. You know, interesting analysis. Anyway, that's the concept for this little micro series. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. It is October the 18th at about 6.30 a.m. in the morning here on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia in the year 2023. And this is episode two of season one of Day in Review. And we're going to try and work together another uh, three ideas. So the first of them comes from Gilbert Dr. Al. Well, not so much an idea as a note of occurrence, and then we're going to move from there via Danny Eleganza into uh, Sloboda and his comment on uh, the Jimmy Dore show, and from there we're going to do a slide into Brian Boletic, aka the new Atlas, to attempt to answer the question which I was considering yesterday, and that is, given that Israel has called up 360,000 reservists, and apparently their military all ready to go in and smash the crap out of Gaza. Why haven't they done so? Why are they paused? So, let's begin with Gilbert Dr. Al. Uh, the article linked in the update for today relates what's going on in terms of Russian media, which is a service he provides to us all. However, at the end of it is a note that a Qatari emir visited Schultz in Germany and quietly informed him that if they keep supporting Israel in this genocidal attack on Gaza, then uh, then Germany's going to have no more gasser from Qatar. And Qatar supplies 15% of the world's liquid natural gas market. And because the EU decided to sanction the crap out of Russia, they ain't got no more Russian gas, and therefore they need the liquid natural gas, despite all of the supply from the US, And so that puts the EU in a bit of a bind. So, from there we enter the world's energy markets. And here is a little side switch into Daniela Ganser. Daniela Ganser is a Swiss uh, historian, and the subject of his PhD is known as Operation Gladio, or NATO's Stay Behind Army. And they play an important role in the first few decades following the end of the Second World War to prevent a bunch of communist governments from emerging in war-torn Europe. Uh, They played particular roles in suppressing the Italian people from electing a communist government, which is what they wanted to do after the Second World War, and the CIA didn't want this, and so therefore this was one of the mechanisms used to prevent that from occurring. Uh, And there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff there too. I invite you to look up Galen, who was the member of the Nazi organization who was responsible for military intelligence for Eastern Europe. He gave himself up to the Americans 
uh, at the point when it became obvious that the uh, Nazis were going to lose. But what he did was take all of his data with him, bury it in the barrel, stick it in the field, and then surrender. And uh, quietly informed the U.S. officer that it would be in his interest to inform his superior, superior, superior commanding officer who Galen was, and uh, there would be uh, there would be advantage in that. Of course, this happened. The data was revealed to the Americans, and they then installed Galen as the head of military intelligence for the reconstituted West Germany. So a Nazi heads <laughs> German military intelligence after the Second World War. Go figure. Anyway, that's a bit of a sideline. Let's move back to Ganza. So his main topic of study after his PhD thesis on Operation Gladio was looking at world energy trade. So he started an institute called the Swiss Institute for Peace and Energy Research, SIPA. And they published, published a whole lot of interesting stuff. And that's what's going on, right? So the Qatari has gone to Germany and said, Oi, cut it out with this political support for Israel's you know, nasty attack on Gaza. So now we flip into Sloboda. So he's been interviewed uh, on the Jimmy Dore show. And his comment is that Saudi Arabia see what the US and the EU tried to do to Russia uh, at the beginning of the special military operation with all of their sanctions. And that is that they tried to take down one of the world's major resource suppliers. And of course that didn't work. But Saudi Arabia saw what was being done and went, shit, that doesn't look so good. And so what they did, well, what MBS did, is change his strategy. Previously, he'd been running a bunch of fairly unimportant wars, like the one in Yemen and so forth, and that was, you know, to make the military-industrial complex happy and la 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 But it turns out that this is a pretty short-sighted strategy, and so he developed his uh, foreign policy game, you could say, and decided that uh, he should hedge his bets a bit and do something a bit more like India. And so he agreed with China to supply them with uh, oil uh, sold to them in their national currency, or the international version of which, which is called the renminbi. Uh, and this essentially spelt the death knell for the petrodollar, which is another story again. But so this is what, this is the reaction um, of a lot of sort of just second tier players in the global economy watching what was attempted to be done to Russia. So you've got obviously, you know, India and, and then... Here we're getting into the Mackinderian analysis, which is part of my geoeconomic theory, which is to look back at the 1906 publication by Mackinder, where he basically says, look, if you look at the, the global map, you know, in Mercator projection, and you sort of zoom out a bit and blow your eyes, there's two islands. <laughs> there's Eurasia and Africa, which are all connected. That's one big island. There's another one. It's North and South America, apart from Antarctica, which is, you know, uninhabitable. Maybe plenty of resources down there, but difficult to get to, etc. So it's really only two islands, and there's a big one and a, and a not-so-big one. And if you control the big one, then you really can control the world. So this is the McKinderian analysis. And it's sort of put into some degree of trouble by the fact that during the colonial expansions, essentially what emerged were a bunch of European powers using maritime transport as their key you know, power, their maritime powers. And what McKinder was saying in the beginning of the 20th century is, well, with the advent of the rail transport, that provides a sort of counter to this dominance of sea transport. So this is sort of land-based empires versus sea-based empires. Anyway, that's the sort of background. And what we're seeing with the emergence of China with its economic dominance and its BRI project is the reconstruction of a land-based power. And they're not doing it as a solo nation in control. No, they're doing that in unison with Russia. And we'll get back to that. So this is underpinned by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is the security and financial and political arm of the Eurasian side of the BRA project. And the BRICS and now BRICS Plus groups are essentially an international political arm of the same thing. All right. So this is one of the points that Sloboda makes, that Saudi sort of wake up to what's going on. So now from there, <clears throat> we move on to a point that Brian Boletic has been making, and that is that when you look at what was going on in the uh, conflict in Ukraine, so you've got the Russian special military operation and you've got the US and NATO funneling weapons and so forth and money into Ukraine, and essentially the end result of that is, as uh, Mishheimer said, what you end up with, you end up with a destroyed Ukraine. You're very clever. But what also happens is essentially a draining of all of the military reserves of NATO and the US. So you recall that uh, the US is running around buying up, you know, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, 155 millimeter artillery shells from South Korea and then from Israel, which is a bit of a bit humorous now, um, in order to supply Ukraine. 
to you know, continue the whole thing because as Lloyd Austin said, you know, we're, we're trying to weaken Russia. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. J- Jesus Christ, learn from history. I mean, Hitler tried this <laughs> and before him, um, Napoleon. It doesn't work. It's a major resource economy. You can't, you can't do this shit. One should ask why the US is running around buying up all these artillery cells. The answer is they can't make them in time. And that is the core problem. Why can't they make them? Well, there's a resource supply issue, the supply side problem. The other one is they don't have the manufacturing infrastructure anymore. This is a major problem for them. And this is why, it's part of the explanation why China and Russia are such a problem and their enemies number one and two on the US strategic list. It's because they have the manufacturing capacity and they have the resource supply too. Anyway, we'll get getting back to resources again in a minute. So, this is really what's going down. The problem is, how can I put this? Okay, human rights are a tool that's used to manipulate populations. It's a touchstone issue for, for the people. The people who are really in power don't really give much of a shit about human rights. They care about resource control. That's where real power lies. You can make whole nations do your bidding if you control the resources. This is always what Imperia are about. So this is the real gig. The problem right now is that because the Middle East are unifying in defense of the Palestinian people, and that includes amazing shit like the president of Iran talking to MBS from Saudi Arabia and agreeing that this shit just can't happen, which itself kills the Saudi-Israeli deal that the US was trying to sponsor, right? This off the table completely now. So that just shows how much of a dumb shit idea that was. Because they're unified, what that means is if this conflict runs broader, gets out of control in the Middle East, what happens is OPEC plus nations, so the plus includes Russia, they will just shut down energy supply for the global economy and the global economy will crash. And this makes very powerful people very, very, very nervous. Our point that Pepe Escobar makes in one of his articles that I've referenced is, of course, if you want to run a big war and it involves Iran, and then what happens is the Strait of Hormuz gets shut down, and that just shuts down the, the global economy. But not many countries can survive for many months without resupply of oil. So this is the big problem. So if you want to also understand about the human rights versus resource supply thing, there, there is no human rights. Go and look at um, George Carlin. I, I highlighted him in a few articles back. Brilliant comedian, and he absolutely lays it out. So really the story is about resource control in the greater sense. But what, what the pause, I'm positing that the pause that Israel is being forced to hold is that very powerful people are very worried about this conflict getting out of control. Because if that happens, the global economy crashes. And as I can't remember who it was that pointed out that the, essentially there's um, many trillions of dollars stuck in um, uh, future trade in the financial systems, and that'll crash. So the whole thing goes kaput without energy supply to keep everything ticking along. So if you expand out from just looking at energy supply, which is critical because that's a short-term fuse, right? If you shut down the supply, the whole global economy crashes. But you have to look at the more strategic, longer-term supply issues too. And one of the ones that's coming, of course, because of uh, our changing climate, right? It's changing. Whatever you want, you, you make your own judgments. In that article a while back, I've had a chat to people who know about this shit. One of the problems there is going to be fresh water. All right, so ex- you're excluding the ice caps, right, as in Antarctica, the top of Himalayas and the Andes and whatever, where is all the fresh water? So, first question, where is the largest freshwater lake on the planet? Where? It's in Russia. Interesting, that. Here's another one. Now, if freshwater is one issue, how about just growing food? So, to do that, you really want fertilizer. Now, obviously, you want nitrogen for that, and this you can get out of oil and so forth. But there's another part to that, which is critically important, and that's potassium. Why is potassium important? Well, Inside every single cell is the mitochondria, and the way that that works to supply energy to the cell is this exchange going on of the change of ADP and ATP. So that's the the di and the tri version of adenosine triphosphate, right? Don't forget the P, that's the phosphate. Where's the largest concentration of available phosphate? Morocco. How much of it is there? Bugger all. So control over the, the potassium supply from Morocco is a very important thing too. Not many people think about it. But skipping back to Ganza... 
The Swiss are rather clever. The world's largest resource trading market is in Switzerland. So their cleverness is to say, well, all the Imperia want the resources. That's what they're fighting over. What we'll do is we'll just make sure we host the market where these things are traded. Clever, right? So this is the structural analysis. Why is the IDF, you know, sitting there with, a, you know, it's God knows how many troops twiddling their thumbs when they could go in and smack the crap out of all these people in Gaza? Well... I suggest that that is because, amongst, there's other reasons too, of course. But the major one is that if they do this, the thing's going to run out of control, and they know that because Iran's told them that they'll unleash Hezbollah, right? And Hezbollah have somewhere between 100 and 150,000 rockets that they can just smack the crap out of Israel, right? So this is what goes down. And as soon as that happens, the US's two carrier groups get involved, and oh my God, there's a major war going on in the Middle East, and the oil disappears, and the global economy crashes. This makes very powerful people very, 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 very nervous. So that is one of the causes for the pause. See you tomorrow. It is approaching 10 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, October the 19th in the year 2023. Welcome to episode 3 of Day in Review. Today I weave together a few articles towards a purpose. We begin with the article by Dan Cohen titled CNN reporter who confirmed, that's in quotes, fake beheaded Israeli baby story promoted Libya intervention propaganda in 2011. And that's from his Substack channel called Uncaptured Media. The other three articles are, first of all, by Manar Adley, who's the editor of Mint Press News, and it was republished in Shearpost by that editor there, Bob Shear. And the title is, How Media Outlets Work with Israel to Control Gaza Narrative. The next is by Elizabeth Voss, who works for Consortium News with their live broadcasting, the producer of which is Kathy Vogan, and of course the editor, Joe Lauria, is a participant in that too. And the article that she's published is Atrocity Propaganda, which hints at this nasty current term, which is atrocity porn, terrible term. Anyway, and the third article is It's All About Provoking Your Reaction by Scott Horton, published as an original at Antiwar. How to introduce this topic? Probably a few words. Babies. Dead babies. Bleeding babies. So if you look back at the Nuremberg Tribunals, uh, or maybe I'm misattributing this, but I think that's where it comes from. And the, the idea is as follows, that war is the ultimate crime, for within it are contained all the other crimes of murder and rape and non-judicial imprisonment, etc., etc., etc. So surely a form of emotional manipulation which drives a population towards war or to approve a war is the nastiest form of all emotional manipulation. And that is the topic that these articles are pointing towards. Historically, this is not new. It's been going on for quite some time and included in the graphic for this episode are three examples that come from the lead-up to America's entry into World War One, So these are designed to manipulate the American population to get themselves involved in yet another European war. So I hinted uh, in last episode that emotional manipulation is a sort of false flag attack. It's, quite, it, it's done by the establishment itself, the government. It's approved by the government to manipulate a population into war. So what's the history of this? Well, I expect it goes back centuries. But it's certainly the case that it was used by the British Empire uh, when they controlled media. And there are, I've heard reports from people I know and respect that it was used during the Boer War. So that's in the 19th century. We have this example from the lead up to World War I. And there's plenty more of it. But I'd like to bring to your attention... Uh, well, I suppose if we start with uh, the direction that Dan Cohen's pointing out with his headline uh, of this reporter who promoted Libyan intervention propaganda, remember the Viagra rubbish? Right? This is more of the same. Not bleeding babies, but, you know, rape. So 
the point I want to go to is a particularly nasty version of this. And this is the White Helmets organisation. The thing about this, which is novel in my understanding, is that this was a human rights organisation, in serious air quotes, which was created by MI6 with their friends across the pond in the CIA. It was funded by the UK version of the State Department, that's called the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, which is the umbrella organisation for MI6, just as the State Department is for the CIA. And so they created this thing, and it was largely organised by a guy called James Le Mazurier, who uh, fell to his death from a balcony in uh, Istanbul um, a year and a half ago or thereabouts. Uh, Whether he was pushed or he jumped, nobody's quite so certain. But this was what was done. And we found out about this due to some excellent uh, reporting, a lot of which was done by the Grey Zone. I've included a link to their tag for White Helmets, but also by some excellent on-the-ground reporting. And one of the people I'd like to mention is Vanessa Beely, who toured, along with some other external uh, journalists, toured Syria and tracked the locations of the White Helmets. And what they found was that they were always co-located with the headquarters of the insurgency that was being funded armed and had been trained by the CIA. The fake constructed human rights organisation was co-located with the belligerents that were being funded. So you, you can see the unity of this. I mean, consider an army. Now, obviously, they, they require soldiers, and they, those soldiers require forms of ammunition. And obviously, they also require a medical corps, and the medical corps require their supplies, you know, being various drugs and blood and, you know, etc. Now, as an army, you want these things reasonably proximate because you want the medical corps to be able to assist uh, soldiers coming back from, from uh, their engagements. However, you really don't want to put the medical supplies right next to the arms because if the arms go off in a big kaboom, then you lose the medical supplies too. But this was not the case in Syria. So the white helmets were always located very close to the headquarters of the insurgent group and therefore essentially what was happening was that the insurgent headquarters was being stationed in a place where if it was attacked by Syria or Russia or whatever, news could be put out that Russia or Syria had attacked the white helmets. Do you see the subtle play going on here? It's very nasty. So not only are they using uh, the white helmets to produce the propaganda of, of people beheaded or bloody babies or whatever, which is largely done by the actual insurgents themselves, but this is being pumped seriously through cable outlets like CNN and so forth and all of the main news media like the New York Times and so forth, pumped at the US population to get them in outrage about Syria, to take down Assad, which of course is complete bullshit because the region is full of uh, nepotistic families in power and the US is thoroughly aligned with one that's even worse. It's a Sunni extremist theocratic monarchy. It's called Saudi Arabia. So the whole outrage at Assad is was just completely beat up. What's behind the whole dirty war in Syria is another question again. It's got something to do with the past gas field, but I'm sure there's other reasons too. Anyway, back to the topic. This form of very nasty emotional manipulation is being used again, and it's important to be aware of it. And what we observe from the newly constructed misinformation, disinformation, blah, blah, ideologue brigades is that people who expose the fact that this is what happens again and again and again get attacked, they get taken down. And I've given references in the sources section to a particular researcher who I have great respect for. His name is Dr Piers Robinson, and he's a part of an organisation called the Organisation for Propaganda Studies. With him is um, uh, Crispin Miller and, and a bunch of other researchers. And they essentially got kicked out, well certainly uh, Robinson did, got kicked out of his university position because he was doing this research, because it offends the powers that be, i.e. the people behind MI6 and the CIA, etc., etc., etc. So there's an interesting battle going on in the information space and these sorts of researchers who are looking into the modern use of propaganda 
um, particularly how it's delivered by the, the mainstream media and the sources of the propaganda and the funding arms and so forth, they are very annoying <laughs> to the powers that be that want to use this very effective and extremely nasty form of emotional manipulation. So have a look at the references. I'll try and dig up uh, a few videos for you of Piers Robinson uh, talking about his work in terms of propaganda studies. The fact that effort is expended to go after people like Piers Robinson informs us that dissemination of the fact that this is emotional manipulation is a threat to it. So therefore, if you would wish to counter this sort of nasty shit, tell people about it. <laughs> the powers of be don't like that. The other question is, how, what other mechanisms are there to counter this? Now, the thing that the mainstream media, or any media for that matter, want more than anything else is your attention. So deny that them. So if they start you know, pushing this sort of rubbish, deny them your attention. The other approach, which is a bit more militant, would be to do the equivalent of graffiti. So how do you then run graffiti on uh, you know, CNN or whoever it is? Well, you know, you can do things like start yourself a substack or wherever else and, you know, just yell at the bastards, publish their stuff and splat it all over the place. That's not a bad plan. Or if they run a comment section, you can fill that with shit, but they will just delete that, so that's not very effective. You could do illegal things like run DDoS campaigns. I'm not advocating any particular strategy, but consider that there are many. Good luck to you with whatever you choose. See you tomorrow. Good morning, it is 10 o'clock here on the eastern seaboard of Australia on Friday, October 20th, 2023, and welcome to episode four of Day in Review. I'm going to steal a line from Alex Christoforou. Let's talk about some news. And we have a doozy. <laughs> so the US State Department has issued a panic alert and uh, I've taken the reportage on that uh, from the ABC's live event, Important Stuff You Should Know About thing, uh, and uh, just highlighted some of the keywords. And the, uh, the announcement with their headline goes as follows. U.S. issues rare worldwide terror fears, potential for terrorist attacks against U.S. interests. All right, okay, so... See, I'm bending the thing a bit, but li those are literally the words in order. I've just skipped the ones that don't matter. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is also known as a no shit Sherlock, or perhaps even better, you broke it, you bought it. <laughs> so the US has gone, yeah, let's club up with these genocidal Zionists and, uh, you know, support them in, in running <laughs> war crimes and inhuman attacks on vulnerable refugees and everything's going to be just fine and dandy. Got to be kidding me. Anyway, so of course, uh, because of that, the other one is uh, that MTV uh, cancelled their European award show for next month or whatever it is, right? So it's all cancelled, which means they must know something we don't, which is rather cute. And then from that same State Department that issued the terror alert, we have a person resigning, and uh, the key the key line here, the headline's great, we are repeating the same mistakes, <laughs> State Department official resigns. Yeah, he's telling them <laughs> how it's going. And of course, th there, is a great, there is a great line in here. This is the quote from the individual who resigned. Decades of the same approach have shown that security for peace leads to neither security nor peace, which I'm certain is a paraphrase of a line from one of the uh, US founding fathers. Uh, I just can't recall at the minute. Anyway, so some fantastic stuff there. And lastly, there's uh, a little report, uh, which is a comment straight out of Reuters. So the ABC person is just re essentially retweeting Reuters on the uh, ABC news service. Uh, there's a quote from a US naval person who's basically saying, oh, yeah, we shot down some drones yeah, uh, in the Red Sea, and uh, we reckon they came from Yemen, and uh, we reckon they were going to attack Israel. And this has just been, you know, splattered out. And I'm just going, dude, have a look at a map. First of all, see how far it is from Yemen to Israel. Second of all, you're going to do that via the Red Sea. You've got to fly all the way up the Red Sea. And then the only way to get into Israel is to go down the, the Gulf of Aqaba 
And there's a very narrow entrance at the end of it if you want to get into Israel. And you're going to get shit, shit, shot down. It's like really hard to do and stupid. So that's obviously not what's going on here. So don't report bullshit. Anyway, that's what you get. But there is some good reportage going on, of course. And it is a consortium news. Joe Laurier has for us, first of all, from Elizabeth Voss, backing the slaughter, silencing the critics. I'm adding the subtitle here, always a good plan. Um, and then we have, uh, Joe Laurie has done a, a report uh, on the UN uh, Security Council meeting because he's an old U- UN reporter, right? UN Joe, that's his Twitter handle. And it's watch, obviously, that means video. US vetoes UN resolution for ceasefire in Gaza. Yeah, the US pulled their veto out and went, nah, we're not having those ceasefires. And that's in parallel with the issuance of the State Department terror alert. Yeah, I think, can we see, uh, like, like a consequences, actions and reactions that, that you know, what was, the, who, what was the guy's name? Pretty famous. Uh, that's right, Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> the fundamental law of physics. Anyway, so and then we have something that I alerted you to a few days ago. Uh, US faces strategic uh, defeat in geopolitical war in Gaza from MK Badrakuma. And then something else I alerted you about last night, which was the uh, report from Caitlin Johnson saying, we don't buy this shit about the hospital (laughs) rubbish. Uh, And then another thing I alerted you about last night, which is a retitle of the uh, 42nd newsletter from the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, which is Vijay Prashad, and it's been retitled as Uprooting Death from Palestine. So there you go. Joe Laurie is doing good things with Consortium News and the uh, general media are doing not so good and the State Department's in a panic and the US is using its veto to um, issue death and destruction upon the Palestinians. Situation all, all fucked up. See you tomorrow. Good evening, everybody. It is 7pm here on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia on Saturday, October the 21st, 2023. And I've got three checkmates for you for Port Israel and the Zionists. So checkmate number one, as identified by Alex Christoforou, good on him, is that there has been a call for an investigation into the missile that hit the car park outside the hospital in Gaza, which killed 471 people, at least, according to the Palestinian health authorities. And the reason that that is a bit of a checkmate is because if that investigation goes ahead, we all know what it's going to find out. Now, I trust that the audio and video footage which Max Blumenthal played uh, during his show with Wyatt Reed is exactly of that attack. And I think he would have done his research on this and made sure that that was a correct piece of audio-video footage. And you can look at it. This thing that hits is not some homemade rocket. This is serious tech. And so that tells us everything we need to know, doesn't it? So either the investigation goes ahead and then we find out that the Zionists fired the bloody rocket and killed all the people, or people push against the holding of an investigation, and that would have to be either the Zionists or their allies, and there's only one of them, and that's the US, and if either of these people do that, we know who did it anyway. Checkmate. All right, so that's just the rocket thing. Now, what's happening with this ground invasion that hasn't happened? That's another checkmate. Checkmate number one is they don't do it. Actually, that's the smartest thing they can possibly do, is not do it, and I expect that that's what will happen because the Israelis are fairly intelligent people sometimes, except they get a little bit wonky when it comes to the Palestinians, shall we say. So the best thing is to not do anything. Uh, but then they look, then there's this, the usual blah, blah, blah about, oh, you look weak and da, da, da. And, you know, the Israeli population have been terrorised. Without a doubt, I mean, this was a very, very nasty attack. Civilians were killed, etc. You can't beat around the bush here. That's what happened. And so, therefore, their population wants their political leadership to exact some revenge, you know, sort of Lex Talionist thing. So they're sort of forced to do something. And if they do, they're also screwed. Because if they go in there, and it's not just me saying this, there's military experts, you know, like Larry Johnson and, and Colonel McGregor and others who are saying... You go in there, that's backmoored on steroids. If they enter the north, because they pushed all, they're trying to push all of the, the Palestinians to the south, and so that the north is exposed, because I presume that's where they think all the tunnels are or something, I don't know, right. But if they go in there, of course it's going to be full of bloody booby caps, and there's all this rubble and perfect stuff uh, for them to use as cover. And so the only way that Israel can actually go into the north of Gaza and run an operation to I don't know, kill all the terrorist Hamas, blah, 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 is if they go in 
full guns blazing. We're talking tanks, armor, a person, the whole damn thing. And that's going to look terrible. You're doing that into an open-air prison that's a concentration camp full of oppressed refugees that happen to be Palestinians. How's that going to look? There. Both ways. So there you go. There's another checkmate. And now here's another one, if that wasn't bad enough. So Blinken Lights and uh, Biden-y did the little trip of, uh, of the Middle East. And, of course, Blinken Lights was made to uh, sit and cool his heels for 14 hours by Mohammed bin Salman uh, when he visited uh, Riyadh. And so he got given the cold shoulder as, about as cold as it gets. And then following, possibly before, but I think it was following Biden's visit to uh, Tel Aviv to have chum up with his good friend Netanyahu, he was meant to have a meeting with uh, the president of Egypt, that's uh, General al-Sisi, and the king of Jordan, and one other player who can't remember what it was, to uh, apparently approve some humanitarian aid deal or some such thing, which would have been a great photo op and la 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 la. And what happened? It didn't occur. Oh, why is that? Because nobody would want to talk to him. We don't have a single word to say to you. Piss off. So there you go. That is to tell you that the US has such a shattered degree of influence in the Middle East that nobody even wants to talk to them. So why is that a problem? Well, that indicates that if Israel does pretty much anything, they are going to get their 9-11 moment. They've been all talking about this, but it hasn't happened yet. What happens is... The after 9-11 moment, which is a whole war, uh, uh, war on terror, war of terror actually, runs. Which is to say, if Israel does anything serious in aggression against the Palestinian people from here, which they're going to have great trouble avoiding doing, then what happens is years and years and years potentially of what everyone will call terrorist attacks. And let's just go back to that term, shall we? Because terrorist is just a, it's a political term. We know what it means. It's use of violence to achieve political ends. It's a political term. Okay, let's wind back a bit. What's the sort of general civilian term for this sort of thing? It's called guerrilla warfare. Okay, fair enough. Uh, What's the military technical term for this? It's called asymmetric warfare. These are the tactics you use when you are the David against the Goliath. So, watch out for terrorists. It's a dangerous term. Uh, What's going to happen is a bunch of very upset people are going to do some very nasty things to Israel. And that's really interesting because the warning that was issued by the US State Department about, you know, heightened terror alert, la la la, well, uh, if that's true for US citizens, and it may well be, I I think not, um, then that implies that their foreign policy is creating for them an increased risk to their citizenry i.e. the policy of the government is making life more dangerous for their citizens. And not only that, immediately thereafter, President Biden goes out and says, and not only that, I want another $100 billion to keep doing this shit. i.e. we want more money to put you in more danger. Or it is the case that the terror alert was not so much for US citizens as Israelis. And there it sort of lands true. And there, that tells you that the U.S. State Department is not working for U.S. citizens, it's working for the Israelis, which is a checkmate of Biden. So there's checkmate, 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 and checkmate. I arrest my case. See you tomorrow. Until next time. Mm-hmm.